Part three of The Aliens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Aliens by Murray Leinster. Part three. Diane had returned to the utterly necessary routine of the radar room, which was the nerve centre of the ship, gathering all information needed for navigation in space. The fact that there had been a collision, that the Nikola's engines were melted to unlovely scrap, that the plumie ship was now welded irremovably to a side keel, and that a plumie was signalling to humans while both ships went spinning through space towards an unknown destination, these things did not affect the obligations of the radar room. Baird got other images of the plumie ship into sharp focus. So near, the scanners required adjustment for precision. "'Take a look at this,' he said wryly. She looked. The view was of the plumies welded fast to the Nikola. The welding was itself an extraordinary result of the plumies' battle tactics. Tractor and presser beams were known to men, of course, but human beings used them only under very special conditions. Their operation involved the building up of terrific static charges. Unless a tractor beam generator could be grounded to the object it was to pull, it tended to emit lightning bolts at unpredictable intervals and in entirely random directions so men didn't use them. Obviously, the plumies did. They'd handled the Nikola's rockets with beams which charged the golden ship to billions of volts. And when the silicon-bronze plumie ship touched the cobalt-steel Nikola, why, that charge had to be shared. It must have been the most spectacular of all artificial electric flames. Part of the Nikola's hull was vaporized, and undoubtedly part of the plumie, but the unvaporized surfaces were molten and in contact, and they stuck. For a good twenty feet the two ships were united by the most perfect of vacuum welds. The wholly dissimilar hulls formed a space catamaran with a sort of valley between their bulks. Spinning deliberately, as the united ships did, sometimes the sun shone brightly into that valley, and sometimes it was filled with the blackness of the pit. While Diane looked, a round door revolved in the side of the plumy ship. As Diane caught her breath, Baird reported crisply— at his first words, Taine burst into raging commands for men to follow him through the Nikola's airlock and fight a boarding party of plumies in empty space. The skipper, very savagely, ordered him to be quiet. "'Only one figure has come out,' reported Baird. The skipper watched on a vision plate, but Baird reported so that all the Nikola's company would know. "'It's small, less than five feet. I'll see better in a moment.' Sunlight smote down the valley between the ships. "'It's wearing a pressure suit,' It seems to be the same material as the ship. It walks on two legs, as we do. It has two arms, or something very similar. The helmet of the suit is very high. It looks like the armour knights used to fight in. It's making its way to our airlock. It doesn't use magnetic soled shoes. It's holding on to lines threaded along the other ship's hull. The skipper said curtly, "'Mr. Baird, I hadn't noticed the absence of magnetic shoes. You seem to have an eye for important items. Report to the airlock in person. Leave Lieutenant Holt to keep an eye on outside objects. Quickly, Mr. Baird.' Baird laid his hand on Diane's shoulder. She smiled at him. "'I'll watch,' she promised. He went out of the radar room, walking on what had been a sidewall. The giddiness and dizziness of continued rotation was growing less now. He was getting used to it. But the Nikola seemed strange indeed, with a standard up and down and earth gravity replaced by a vertical which was all askew, and a weight of ounces instead of a hundred and seventy pounds. He reached the airlock just as the skipper arrived. There were others there, armed and in pressure suits. The skipper glared about him. 
"'I am in command here,' he said very grimly indeed. "'Mr. Taine has a special function, but I am in command. "'We and the creatures on the plumie ship are in a very serious fix. "'One of them apparently means to come on board. "'There will be no hostility, no sneering, no threatening gestures. "'This is a parley. "'You will be careful, but you will not be trigger-happy.' "'He glared around again, just as a metallic rapping came upon the Nicholas airlock door. "'The skipper nodded. "'Let him in the lock, Mr. Baird.' Baird obeyed. The humming of the unlocking system sounded. There were clankings. The outer airlock closed. There was a faint whistling as air went in. The skipper nodded again. Baird opened the inner door. It was zero eight hours, ten minutes, ship time. The plumie stepped confidently out into the topsy-turvy corridors of the Nicola. He was about the size of a ten-year-old human boy, and features which were definitely not grotesque showed through the clear plastic of his helmet. His pressure suit was, engineering-wise, a very clean job. His whole appearance was prepossessing. When he spoke, very clear and quite high sounds, soprano sounds, came from a small speaker unit at his shoulder. "'For us to talk,' said the skipper heavily, "'is pure nonsense. But I take it you've something to say.' The plumie gazed about with an air of lively curiosity. Then he drew out a flat pad with a white surface and sketched swiftly. He offered it to the Nicholas skipper. "'We want this on record,' he growled, staring about. Diane's voice said capably from a speaker somewhere nearby, "'Sir, there's a scanner for inspection of objects brought aboard. Hold the plate flat, and I'll have a photograph.' "'Right.' The skipper said curtly to the plumie, "'You've drawn our two ships linked as they are. What have you to say about it?' He handed back the plate. The plumie pressed a stud, and it was blank again. He sketched and offered it once more. Hmm, said the skipper. "'You can't use your drive while we're glued together, eh? "'Well.' The plumie reached up and added lines to the drawing. "'So,' rumbled the skipper, inspecting the additions, "'you say it's up to us to use our drive for both ships?' He growled approvingly. "'You consider there's a truce. "'You must, because we're both in the same fix, "'and not a nice one either. "'True enough, we can't fight each other "'without committing suicide now. "'But we haven't any drive left. "'We're a derelict.' "'How am I going to say that, if I decide to?' Baird could see the lines on the plate from the angle at which the skipper held it. He said, "'Sir, we've been mapping up in the radar room. Those last lines are map coordinates, a separate sketch, sir. I think he's saying that the two ships, together, are on a falling course toward the sun, that we have to do something, or both vessels will fall into it. We should be able to check this, sir.' "'Ha!' growled the skipper. "'That's all we need. Absolutely all we need.' to come here to get into a crazy fight, have our drive melt to scrap, get crazily welded to a plumie ship, and then for both of us to fry together. We don't need anything more than that. Diane's voice came on the speaker. Sir, the last radar fixes on the planets in range give us a course directly toward the sun. I'll repeat the observations. The skipper growled. Tane thrust himself forward. He snarled. "'Why doesn't this plumie take off its helmet? "'It lands on oxygen planets. "'Does it think it's too good to breathe our air?' Baird caught the plumie's eye. He made a gesture suggesting the removal of the space helmet. The plumie gestured in return to a tiny vent in the suit. He opened something and gas whistled out. He cut it off. The question of why he didn't open or remove his helmet was answered. The atmosphere he breathed would not do men any good, nor would theirs do him any good either.' Taine said suspiciously, 
"'How do we know he's breathing the stuff he let out, then? "'This creature isn't human. "'It's got no right to attack humans. "'Now it's trying to trick us.' "'His voice changed to a snarl. "'We'd better wring its neck. "'Teach its kind a lesson.' "'The skipper roared at him. "'Be quiet. "'Our ship is a wreck. "'We have to consider the facts. "'We and these plumies are in a fix together, "'and we have to get out of it "'before we start to teach anybody anything.' "'He glared at Tain. "'Then he said heavily, "'Mr. Baird, you seem to notice things. "'Take this plumie over the ship. "'Show him our drive melted down, "'so he'll realise we can't possibly tow his ship into an orbit. "'He knows that we're armed, "'and that we can't handle our warheads at this range, "'so we can't fool each other. "'We might as well be frank, "'but you will take full note of his reactions, Mr. Baird.' "'Baird advanced, and the skipper made a gesture. "'The plumie regarded Baird with interested eyes, "'and Baird led the way for a tour of the Nicola.' It was confusing even to him, with right hand converted to up and left hand to down, and sideways now almost vertical. On the way the plumie made more clear flute-like sounds and more gestures. Baird answered. Our gravity pull was that way, he explained, and things fell so fast. He grasped the handrail and demonstrated the speed with which things fell in normal ship gravity. He used a pocket communicator for the falling weight. It was singularly easy to say some things, even highly technical ones, because they'd be what the plumie would want to know. But quite commonplace things would be very difficult to convey. Diane's voice came out of the communicator. "'There are no novelties outside,' she said quietly. "'It looks like this is the only plumie ship anywhere around. It could have been exploring, like us. Maybe it was looking for the people who put up space survey markers.' "'Maybe,' agreed Baird, using the communicator. "'Is that stuff about falling into the sun correct?' "'It seems so,' said Diane, composedly. "'I'm checking again. "'So far the best course I can get means we graze the sun's photosphere in fourteen days, six hours, "'allowing for acceleration by the sun's gravity.' "'And you and I,' said Baird, wryly, "'have been acting as professional associates only when—' "'Don't say it,' said Diane, shakily. "'It's terrible.' He put the communicator back in his pocket. The plumie had watched him. He had a peculiarly gallant air, this small figure in golden space armour with its high-crested helmet. They reached the engine-room, and there was the giant drive-shaft of the Nicola, once wrapped with yard-thick coils which could induce an incredible density of magnetic flux in the metal. Even the return magnetic field through the ship's cobalt-steel hull was many times higher than saturation. Now the coils were sagging, mostly melted. There were places where resolidified metal smoked noisomely against non-metallic floor or wall covering. Engineers laboured doggedly in the trivial gravity to clean up the mess. "'It's past repair,' said Baird to the ship's first engineer. "'It's junk,' said that individual dually. "'Give us six months and a place to set up a wire-drawing mill and an insulator synthesizer, and we could rebuild it. But nothing less will be any good.' The plumie stared at the drive. He examined the shaft from every angle. He inspected the melted and partly melted and merely burned-out sections of the drive-coils. He was plainly unable to understand in any fashion the principle of the magnetronic drive. Baird was tempted to try to explain, because there was surely no secret about a ship-drive, but he could imagine no diagrams or gestures which would convey the theory of what happened in cobalt steel when it was magnetised beyond one hundred thousand gas-flux density and without that theory one simply couldn't explain a magnetronic drive. They left the engine-room. 
They visited the rocket batteries. The generator room was burned out, like the drive, by the inconceivable lightning bolt which had passed between the ships on contact. The plumie was again puzzled. Baird made it clear that the generator room supplied electric current for the ship's normal lighting system and services. The plumie could grasp that idea. They examined the crew's quarters and the mess-room, and the plumie walked confidently among the members of the human crew, who a little while since had tried so painstakingly to destroy his vessel. He made a good impression. "'Those little guys,' said a crewman to Baird admiringly, "'they got something. They can handle a ship. I bet they could almost make that ship of theirs play checkers.' "'Close to it,' agreed Baird. He realised something. He pulled the communicator from his pocket— "'Diane, contact the skipper. He wanted observations. Here's one. This plumie acts like soldiers used to act in ancient days when they wore armour. And we have the same reaction. They will fight like the devil, but during a truce they'll be friendly, admiring each other as scrappers, but ready to fight as hard as ever when the truce is over. We have the same reaction. Tell the skipper I've an idea that it's a part of their civilization. Maybe it's a necessary part of any civilization. Tell him, I guess, that there may be necessarily parallel evolution of attitudes among rational races, as there are parallel evolutions of eyes and legs and wings and fins among all animals everywhere. If I'm right, somebody from this ship will be invited to tour the plumie. It's only a guess, but tell him. Immediately, said Diane. The plumie followed gallantly as Baird made a steep climb up what once was the floor of a corridor. Then Taine stepped out before them, his eyes burned. "'Giving him a clear picture, eh?' he rasped. "'Letting him spy out everything?' Baird pressed the communicator call for the radar room, and said coldly, "'I'm obeying orders. Look, Tane, you were picked for your job because you were a xenophobe. It helps in your proper functioning. But this plumie is here under a flag of truce.' "'Flag of truce!' snarled Tane. "'It's vermin. It's not human. I'll—' "'If you move one inch nearer him,' said Baird gently, "'just one inch—' The skipper's voice bellowed through the general call-speakers all over the ship. "'Mr. Tane, you will go to your quarters under arrest. Mr. Baird, burn him down if he hesitates.' Then there was a rushing, and scrambling figures appeared and were all about. They were members of the Nicola's crew sent by the skipper. They regarded the plumie with detachment, but Tane with a wary expectancy. Tane turned purple with fury. He shouted, he raged, he called Baird and the others plumie-lovers and vermin-worshippers. He shouted foulnesses at them. But he did not attack. When, still shouting, he went away, Baird said apologetically to the plumie, "'He's a xenophobe. He has a pathological hatred of strangers, even of strangeness. We have him on board, because—' Then he stopped. The plumie wouldn't understand, of course, but his eyes took on a curious look. It was almost as if, looking at Baird, they twinkled. Baird took him back to the skipper. "'He's got the picture, sir,' he reported. The plumie pulled out his sketch-plate. He drew on it. He offered it. The skipper said heavily, "'You guessed right, Mr. Baird. He suggests that someone from the ship go on board the plumie vessel. He's drawn two pressure-suited figures going in their airlock, one's larger than the other. Will you go?' "'Naturally,' said Baird. Then he added thoughtfully, "'But I'd better carry a portable scanner, sir. "'It should work perfectly well through a bronze hull, sir.' "'The skipper nodded and began to sketch a diagram "'which would amount to an acceptance of the plumie's invitation. "'This was at zero seven hours, forty minutes, ship-time. "'Outside the sedately rotating metal hulls, "'the one a polished blue silver and the other a glittering golden bronze, 
the cosmos continued to be as always. The haze from explosive fumes and rocket fuel was perhaps a little thinner. The brighter star shone through it. The gas-giant planet outward from the sun was a perceptible disk instead of a diffuse glow. The oxygen planet to sunward showed again as a lighted crescent. Presently Baird, in a human spacesuit, accompanied the plumie into the Nikola's airlock and out into emptiness. His magnetic-soled shoes clung to the Nikola's cobalt-steel skin. Fastened to his shoulder there was a tiny scanner and microphone which would relay everything he saw and heard back to the radar room and to Diane. She watched tensely as he went inside the plumy ship. Other screens relayed the image and his voice to other places on the Nikola. He was gone a long time. From the beginning, of course, there were surprises. When the plumy escort removed his helmet on his own ship, the reason for the helmet's high crest was apparent. He had a high crest of what looked remarkably like feathers, and it was not artificial. It grew there. The reason for conventionalized plumes on bronze survey plates was clear. It was exactly like the reason for human features or figures as decorative additions to the inscriptions on space survey marker plates. Even the plumies' hands had odd crestlets which stood out when he bent his fingers. The other plumies were no less graceful and no less colourful. They had equally clear soprano voices. They were equally miniature and so devoid of apparent menace. But there were also technical surprises. Baird was taken immediately to the plumie ship's engine-room, and Diane heard the sharp intake of breath with which he appeared to recognise its working principle. There were plumie engineers working feverishly at it, attempting to discover something to repair, but they found nothing. The plumie drive simply would not work. They took Baird through the ship's entire fabric, and their purpose, when it became clear, was startling. The plumie ship had no rocket tubes, it had no beam projectors, except small-sized objects which were, which must be, their projectors of tractor and presser beams. They were elaborately grounded as a ship's substance, but they were not originally designed for ultra-heavy service. They hadn't and couldn't have the enormous capacity Baird had expected. He was astounded. When he returned to the Nikola, he went instantly to the radar room to make sure that pictures taken through his scanner had turned out well and there was Diane. But the skipper's voice boomed at him from the wall. "'Mr. Baird, what have you to add to the information you sent back?' Three items, sir,' said Baird. He drew a deep breath. "'For the first, sir, the plumie ship is unarmed. They've tractor and presser beams for handling material. They probably used them to build their cairns. But they weren't meant for weapons. The plumies, sir, hadn't a thing to fight with when they drove for us after we detected them.' The skipper blinked hard. "'You sure of that, Mr. Baird?' "'Yes, sir,' said Baird uncomfortably. "'The plumie ship is an exploring ship, a survey ship, sir. "'You saw their mapping equipment. "'But when they spotted us, and we spotted them, they bluffed. "'When we fired rockets at them, they turned them back with tractor and presser beams. "'They drove for us, sir, to try to destroy us with our own bombs, "'because they didn't have any of their own.' "'The skipper's mouth opened and closed.' "'Another item, sir,' said Baird, more uncomfortably still. "'They don't use iron or steel. "'Every metal object I saw was either a bronze or a light metal. "'I suspect some of their equipment's made of potassium, "'and I'm fairly sure they use sodium in the place of aluminium. "'Their atmosphere's quite different from ours, obviously. "'They'd use bronze for their ship's hull "'because they can venture into an oxygen atmosphere in a bronze ship. "'A sodium-hulled ship would be lighter, but it would burn in oxygen. "'Where there was moisture—' The skipper blinked. 
"'But they couldn't drive in a non-magnetic hull,' he protested. "'A ship has to be magnetic to drive.' "'Sir,' said Baird, his voice still shaken, "'they don't use a magnetronic drive. "'I once saw a picture of the drive they use in a stereo on the history of space travel. "'The principle's very old. We've practically forgotten it. "'It's a Dirac pusher drive, sir. "'Among us humans it came right after rockets. "'The planets of Sol were first reached by ships using Dirac pushers, but—' he paused. They won't operate in a magnetic field above seventy gas, sir. It's a static charge reaction, sir, and in a magnetic field it simply stops working. The skipper regarded Baird unwinkingly for a long time. I think you're telling me, he said at long last, that the plumies' drive would work if they were cut free of the Nicola. Yes, sir, said Baird. Their engineers were opening up the drive elements and checking them and then closing them up again. They couldn't seem to find anything wrong. I don't think they know what the trouble is. It's the Nicola's magnetic field. I think it was our field that caused the collision by stopping their drive and killing all their controls when they came close enough. Did you tell them? demanded the skipper. There was no easy way to tell them by diagram, sir. Taine's voice cut in. It was feverish. It was strident. It was triumphant. Sir, the Nicola is effectively a wreck and irreparable. "'But the plumie ship is operable if cut loose. "'As weapons officer, I intend to take the plumie ship, "'let out its air, fill its tanks with our air, "'start up its drive, and turn it over to you for navigation back to base.' "'Baird raged, but he said coldly, "'We're a long way from home, Mr. Tain, "'and the Dirac pusher drive is slow. "'If we headed back to base in the plumie ship with its Dirac pusher, "'we'd all be dead of old age before we'd gone half-way.' "'But unless we take it,' raged Tain, "'we hit this sun in fourteen days. "'We don't have to die now. "'We can land on the oxygen planet up ahead. "'We've only to kill these vermin and take their ship, and we'll live.' "'Diane's voice said dispassionately, "'Report. "'A plumie in a pressure suit just came out of their airlock. "'It's carrying a parcel toward our airlock.' "'Tain snarled instantly. "'They'll sneak something in the Nicola to blast it, "'and then cut free and go away.' "'The skipper said very grimly, "'Mr. Tane, credit me with minimum brains. "'There is no way the plumies can take this ship "'without an atomic bomb exploding to destroy both ships. "'You should know it.' "'Then he snapped. "'Airlock area, listen for a knock, "'and let in the plumie or the parcel he leaves.' "'There was silence. "'Baird said very quietly, "'I doubt they think it possible to cut the ships apart. "'A torch is no good on thick silicon bronze. "'It conducts heat too well. "'And they don't use steel. "'They probably haven't a cutting torch at all.' From the radar room he watched the plumie place an object in the airlock and withdraw. He watched from a scanner inside the ship as someone brought in what the plumie had left. An electronics man bustled forward. He looked it over quickly. It was complex, but his examination suddenly seemed satisfying to him. But a greyish vapour developed, and he sniffed and wrinkled his nose. He picked up a communicator. "'Sir, they've sent us a power generator.' Some of its parts are going bad in our atmosphere, sir, but this looks to me like a hell of a good idea for a generator. I never saw anything like it, but it's good. You can set it for any voltage, and it'll turn out plenty juice. Put it in helium, snapped the skipper. It won't break down in that. Then see how it serves. In the radar room, Baird drew a deep breath. He went carefully to each of the screens and every radar. Diane saw what he was about and checked with him. They met at the middle of the radar room. "'Everything's checked out,' said Baird, gravely. "'There's nothing else around. "'There's nothing we can be called on to do before something happens. "'So we can act like people.' 
Diane smiled very faintly. "'Not like people, just like us,' she said wistfully. "'Don't you want to tell me something? Something you intended to tell me only after we got back to base?' He did. He told it to her. And there was also something she had not intended to tell him at all, unless he told her first. She said it now. They felt that such sayings were of the greatest possible importance. They clung together, saying them again. And it seemed wholly monstrous that two people who cared so desperately had wasted so much time acting like professional associates, explorership officers, when things like this were to be said. As they talked incoherently, or were even more eloquently silent, the ship's ordinary lights came on. The battery lamp went on. "'We've got to switch back to ship's circuit,' said Baird reluctantly. They separated and restored the operating circuits to normal. "'We've got fourteen days,' he added, "'and so much time to be on duty, and we've a lost lifetime to live in fourteen days. Diane—' She flushed vividly. So Baird said very politely into the microphone to the navigation room, "'Sir, Lieutenant Holt and myself would like to speak directly to you in the navigation room, may we?' "'Why not?' growled the skipper. "'You've noticed that the plumie generator is giving the whole ship lights and services?' "'Yes, sir,' said Baird. "'We'll be there right away.' End of Part 3